You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, I am talking to film programmers Eric Hines and Ed Ochoi, all about the First Look Film Festival over at the Museum of the Moving Image. They've been doing it for 11 years now, and they are back fully in theaters looking at, gosh, 40 films. There's what, 18 features from 30 different countries. It is a wide swath of movies from all around the globe. Some really terrific stuff. I had the pleasure of seeing a few titles myself. I have to say they're doing a great job over there. I hope you enjoy this interview and really it will do you good to go see some movies at a theater. If you're comfortable, check out the entire program at movingimage.us. Hope you enjoy the interview. So Eric, how did you come to be a film programmer at Momi? I was a critic and freelance journalist writing, specializing in film for quite a while before I came to the museum. I'd done some programming here and there, but did not have a deep background in programming. So it was sort of a bit of an unconventional hire to bring me in, but I think it's worked out okay. I've had to learn a lot on the fly, but I think the ways in which I, I guess I approached journalism and criticism wound up being useful in terms of programming. That doesn't always work out that way. I think that there's, we all, Edo and I both know some folks who, who, who maybe thought that they could easily go from one, one world to the, to the other. And, and they are distinct, but at least so far, it feels like it's been a good fit for me. How long have you been working at Momi? Six and a half years. I started in the end of 2015. How about yourself, Edo? I've been working at the museum since late 2019. And what was your background? I have been curating or programming film 
for many years, basically since college. And I've also worked as a projectionist in that time. And a job like Momi was was sort of a dream, a dream for me. And you know, I'm very gratified that Eric thought I was up to the up to snuff for it. So it, yeah. it, it was a dream, and it's become a nightmare. <laughs> Tell me a little bit more about Momi and especially when it comes to the screening series that you have, because I imagine that you guys have a lot of different screening series throughout the year, this being, you know, film being your bread and butter. Right. So the institution does a lot of things and the moving image means a lot of things. And there's a lot implied by that and a lot that that encompasses in a, in a, in a good way, but also can be in a bit of an overwhelming way too. But indeed, what Edo and I sort of spend most of our time on is our film screenings and film programs and film series. And I think it's actually great, especially in the last couple of years of that institution, we've been invited into more conversations about what happens in the galleries and in terms of, you know, what uh, the, the other, the other departments of, of, of in, in the museum. But in terms of our programming, yeah, it's mostly film. We do do programming that's TV related, but it's a lot harder to do TV programming um, for for no other reason or no other more interesting reason than than there being kind of legal issues around that that make it more challenging to charge tickets to have to come see television shows. But yeah, we show over 500 films a year, and that includes ongoing series that happen maybe monthly. Then there's series that happen more sporadically than that. And there's also just what I would, you know, there's the sort of series that happen over the course of two, three, four weekends that are thematic or are focusing on individual filmmakers or are attached to temporary exhibitions in the galleries. First Look is the only thing that we do year round that is a festival that we generate ourselves. We are host to some festivals. We partner with some festivals, but this is the one time a year where top down or bottom up, we make it. And it's a labor of love because it is not something we have a ton of resources for and it is not necessarily the blockbuster that we put out put out there every year but over 11 years it's become something that i feel like has a, has its place in the in the festival landscape certainly has its place in the new york festival landscape and it feels like it, it's important for the work that adam and i do to um champion new work and give a platform and a good platform for work that we find exciting that's going on throughout the world. And when it comes to even the name first look uh, is this the first chance that a lot of people have had to look at this, or is this even just brand new directors that are getting their first crack at an audience? Totally fair question. I mean, it was started, I should say 2012 by who was a chief curator of the museum at the time, David Schwartz and two other folks who were, who were working at the museum, Rachel Rakes and Dennis Lim. Rachel Rakes and Dennis Lim are still doing amazing programming in New York, as is David Schwartz, who programs the Paris Theater now. And I think that the idea behind it was that fact that they realized that so many great films every year were not getting a festival launch in New York. And so they were filling a gap there. And I think 11 years later, there's still that gap that we're filling, that we feel, you know, we're always talking about films that how is this not played yet? This film's incredible. This, this festival, that festival, and it won such and such a prize, but somehow is not latched onto a festival. So we definitely are performing that role still. What we're showing is New York premieres. So that's all new to New York audiences. But over the last couple of years, we've kind of also thought a little bit more about first look means or what it could mean. We are particularly interested in, in, in artists who barely have had a chance to screen work in New York. So we're also introducing the artists to the community. And we're also thinking about giving our audience an opportunity to see work that isn't even done yet. 
by doing work in progress screenings, by having artists come to the building and help each other in terms of wherever they are and expose our audiences to that too, because year round who we are as an institution is because we're museum moving image because we have objects in our museum because folks come to understand a little bit of how the film industry works and also how filmmaking works that we can host filmmakers to talk about how they do what they do and why they do what they do. And so anyway, that happens all year round and we love talking to cinematographers and screenwriters and producers and, and editors. And by kind of first look is a moment where we can do that, but not necessarily talk about things that are on the festival tour or that, or talk, have conversations that are, you know, quotable for the release of their film and actually much more sort of in-depth conversations about filmmaking. So first look has become that as well, you know, and that extends also to student films. And so we've been showcasing student films from Murray Center for Documentary Journalism, University of Missouri and SVA, and also partnering with Columbia, like, you know, making sure that students are a part of that too. I know there's usually that fight when it comes to the first look at things, that whole idea of like, this is the North American premiere. This is the American premiere, the Canadian premiere. Do you ever run into troubles where people don't want to allow you to show their films because they want to get that premiere status at another festival? I've had the approach for years now of we are such a filmmaker oriented festival and we are such filmmaker oriented people, the two of us that we really only want filmmakers to come and show their film if they are sort of unreservedly excited and interested in showing the film there. Don't want to fight for a film and then have them be unhappy or wish that they've programmed elsewhere. I like hearing the other way around, which we do hear all the time, where they played somewhere else and kind of wish they had played with us. That's what I'd like to hear rather than the other way around. So yeah, there are films that we don't get a chance to show because either they're playing somewhere else or there's a chance that it'll play somewhere else. And because we're filmmaker, you know, sympathetic and oriented, you always want to sort of, you know, have a sideline conversation here or there and say, that may not happen. So are you okay saying no to this if that doesn't happen? But that's just how it goes. The, the bad thing for us winning competitions is also a good thing for us in terms of our year on programming, which is that if we don't play it at a festival, we could probably find a way of playing it later on. I think that First Look is a really good platform, and I feel really good about the context in which these films play when they play during the festival. But it's not the only way for us to show a film. If we can wish a filmmaker well somewhere else and then bring them back six months later for another reason, that's fine, too. So I don't imagine this festival happened last year. Did it happen the year before? First Look 2020, which was our first festival, first time in March. We had shifted from January to March. You know, January was very much the first look you know, it was part, it was, it was good for the brand. It was the first of the year, but we moved to March because we felt that was a better spot for us in the landscape. And it was in terms of programming, we got some really good films that had just started their life and they were excited about us. We launched festival in person on March 11th. When we came off the stage from the opening night conversation with Hubert Sopair for Epicentro, we discovered upon looking at our phones, three things. One was that the NBA season was canceled. Two was that Donald Trump looked stricken on television, admitting that the, that the virus was a thing. And the third thing, that Tom Hanks had the coronavirus in Australia. So we proceeded with our supposedly safe distanced party, knowing full well that the life that the world was changing around us. By March 13th, less than two days later, we had canceled the festival and sent everybody home. 
and took several years off of our lives in the process. And then we did not want to do online in 2021. It just didn't feel like First Look is about bringing folks in person to Queens and and watching movies in a theater or a museum. So we waited. And then we did what we called First Look 20 slash 21 in 2021, in which we showed every film we didn't get a chance to show in 2020. And then also a new batch of films, like 11 films or so, or 11 features we added. So we had, we did, we did two weekends. We did a, a real full on, you know, basically combo festival last summer, which we felt really great about. And, and it was kind of the first time that a lot of people came back to see that type of programming in, in, a, in a year and a half. So but we're back on schedule for this year. So we didn't miss a year, miraculously. And we also didn't go fully online at any point, although we did have online programming as part of it. So tell me about this new program and tell me how it came together. And especially, were there any themes that you noticed with this batch of 2022 films? You know, we usually start in earnest, I'd say, uh, after the New York Film Festival and the Toronto Film Festival is when we really kind of start looking at work in earnest. I mean, it's a year-round process, but that's really when it heats up. Especially this year, I will say, because we had this small window from July to March. So in a normal year, I would say it's we've plenty of times we program films from, say, the previous Berlin or Cannes. That's just not really on the table this time because it's such a, a short window. That's exactly right. Because first look 20 slash 21 was, was in the midsummer, was in July. We'd actually already seen a lot of films for that edition and considered them from earlier in the year. So this time we were really looking at any work that had been at Cannes or after, really, with the later edition of Cannes last year. Um, and... And I, I mean, I think one of the things I particularly liked about this year's program was, uh, or, you know, I don't know that it's a theme, but is that we do have a real strong complement of uh, narrative films or dramatic films, I mean, which I think we, we had more, we had more documentaries, not for lack of being interested in narrative dramatic features, but more because that was the work that we were most excited by in the last couple of years. And but it was nice to f- find a, a, a pretty solid group of dramatic features that we were really excited about this year. And I would credit Edo for that. I mean, that was something that Edo recognized as if we wound up with more documentaries than, than, than narrative films, so be it. But shouldn't we blanket the landscape a little bit and sort of see what we could bring in? And I think we brought in some fantastic films that Edo in particular discovered along the way. So, yeah, I think that, that, is, that is definitely an evolution this year based on compared to previous years. I'm surprised too at just how many countries you were able to get films from. I'm reading what, 30 countries at least? When you talk about co-productions, right. I think we had wound up with low 40s number of films. And I think that, right, if you look at co-productions, it's it's around that. But I think, yeah, I mean, we only have some repeat countries in, you know, which I mean, which also winds up being probably worth talking about in terms of things that we the character of the festival taking shape based on kind of clusters of work that we were identifying. But that's always been the idea is to kind of not, not just look to a handful of festivals to find films and not just look to a handful of, of national cinemas, but to kind of challenge ourselves to, to go further. What I'd like that in addition to showing films from countries where maybe we haven't shown a film recently is also like there being some traction with certain areas. 
like last year, we should have filmed from Madagascar. And again, this year, we're showing a film from Madagascar. And that's something we talked about, like that we were excited about what we saw last year, excited about the filmmaker we got to know. And, and he recommended a title and we watched some other things. And, and that becomes, you know, unexpectedly maybe something that we'll continue to kind of pursue in terms of what work from that territory. Conversely, this is not new to us. It's been going on for a little while that we have a number of films from either Russia or the post-Soviet countries or Eastern Europe. Eastern Europe is probably a much better way of saying that, especially in this particular moment. That's been brewing for a little while. We, in 2017, we had a pretty ambitious series called Putin's Russia, where we looked at films from that region over the course of, you know, basically 19 years at that point. Uh, you know, and my interest in that, in that area and our kind of going much, much further and in introducing ourselves to new filmmakers and films from that span of time kind of got us excited, you know? And so I think that we're looking for films from that territory. That's that said, and and I don't know how you feel about this, Edo, too. I think that's also just a simple fact of there's great work coming from, 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 from these. So, and, and, and there's great work that's several films in, like there's first time filmmakers that we're excited film works we're excited by. We're also like looking at filmmakers who've been making really, really good work for a while now. And for whatever reason, our connection with that, those filmmakers and our interest in showing them, it seems to sort of outdistance some other institutions maybe. And so I'm very proud of that and proud that we, every year we seem to have a corner of the festival that's pretty well represented from that area. I started out in our process being very sensitive to, oh God, there's a lot of films from Eastern Europe. And I'm very actually proud that it's the case. Now, not just about we have a particular interest in the region or they that broad part of the world, because it's more than just one region, really. Then also that the work is just so strong. And this is reflected. I mean, if you look at festival lineups from around the world, this is reflected at every well-programmed festival. For the amount of work that we have from Eastern Europe this year, there are dozens more films that I can think of that we either watched or had on our list for consideration that are good films and that that would have been worthy of programming. There's just a lot of energy out of, again, that larger part of the world. And I don't just mean Ukraine and, and Russia, but also Georgia, the Balkans, Kazakhstan. I mean, just there's a lot of energy. And I think that that in part is due to the fact that conflict and struggle kind of breed, or, you know, are their great breeding grounds for artistic achievements. Just this fall, we did a, a mini retro of New Georgian cinema. That country alone provided us with an entire weekend's worth of programming. And that was just the tip of the iceberg for that particular country. So, of course, we want to take credit for finding things, but sometimes it's, we'd be fools to, to not recognize what's coming our way. Well, what is your process when it comes to discovering these? And you talked about kind of, you know, your short list, your longer list. I mean, how do films even make it to the list in order to say, like, I think this should be in here. No, how about this one? And just that process of actual programming this festival. Well, I would say that we're not a submissions festival. You know, we and we and it's a and it's there's not a lot of titles. And it is something that we just simply want to do and think is a really important thing that we do. And as an institution, I would say over time, we buy into it more and more as an institution as being like a, you know, one of the most significant things we can do 
year round, but because it is something that we do because we really, really want to while holding these full-time jobs at the museum, there's just no way for it to run like a submissions festival and to watch thousands of films. So it's always been something that it can be done because we program a, an institution year round and go to a lot of festivals and see a lot of films. And so it winds up being the things that we've encountered Filmmakers we're excited about, filmmakers we've shown before that we want to see what they're working on next, students that have come through and we track them. Like, you know, there's always ways that you like track any filmmaker if you're a year round programmer, is kind of how we sort of do that. There's also a list. We are, we're keeping tabs, we're checking in with people. Sales agents do reach out to us and we reach out to sales agents. But it's it's not really a scientific process so much as it is we're programmers all year long rather than seasonally all year long. We're kind of keeping track, writing down things to see later on, writing down what we've seen and starting at some point, not much earlier than say fall or early fall, starting to make an ex- extend some invitations and letting people know we, we know we want to show this film. And the other thing I would say in terms of our process, and, and this is new, this is maybe the, the third festival that Edo and I have worked on together. And there are other folks on staff uh, that have contributed films in various and, and, and programs in various ways is we do talk constantly and we're constantly telling each other things that we've seen, but, and this has not played out in any way that is contentious, but we also have a little, we know we have some freedom to champion things individually. We're not like I, we don't vote, you know, we're not sort of like coming up with some equation for what the consensus is for a certain title. I think it's really, really important that we be able to advocate for films that we really, really want to bring. And of course, there are moments where one of us really doesn't like something else, and that's maybe unlikely to get programmed, but it's possible. It's possible. And there's definitely films that one or the other of us is extra enthusiastic about. But I actually think that that winds up being, in the end, it creates a program that is actually way more representative of us than if we actually met in the middle all the time. I think that our programming should be reflective of us as individuals as well as as an institution. Well, along those lines, Edda, what are some of your favorite films from this year and what should we be looking at that you gave your stamp of approval to? These are all good movies. And I think that that goes in part toward, you know, toward what Eric was saying earlier that this is a labor of love for us. This is mostly about what we like. I mean, it really, I mean, it's not a festival unlike other festivals where we feel a great responsibility, I mean, we feel the responsibility, of course, to represent the work that we've chosen well, but we don't feel a great responsibility to represent the field. I think that that's, you know, a distinction between and some larger festivals that I think have to, they have this burden to represent kind of the state of the art or something like that. And while we do want to represent the state of the art or what we think matters at a certain time in the arts, history we don't feel we have to be the official record on some level we feel you know that this is another entry or footnote into that record but it's more personal and in some ways because others have that responsibility we can be the one that says that that's all great but you forgot this (laughs) yeah exactly exactly i'll name some films now because you asked but i do genuinely think these are all good and distinctive and you know eccentric works you know and I really lean into eccentricity personally. I I like films that you can't quite square with a fashion or a popular 
moment and form, right? Which is a great problem, regardless of, you know, what echelon of the filmmaking world you're thinking about, whether it's art house or avant-garde film or artist cinema or uh, just the kind of festival film. All of these have their, their generic variants. I want to lean away from anything too generic. One film I really, really love this year is this film Reflection by Valentin Vasyanovich, which was at it was part of the Venice competition selection this past year. Valentin is a Ukrainian filmmaker. He's actually kind of a rising star. He had a film called Atlantis that actually had a release in the United States just last year and that was selected to New Directors New Films a couple of years ago. Reflection was not as noted upon, I think, out of Venice as I would have expected it to be. I mean, there were some people who covered it, kind of put it on our radar. Considering Valentin's rising kind of reputation, I would have expected it to get a little bit, draw more attention out of Venice. And now, of course, it's going to be drawing, I hope, a lot more attention given current events because the film deals with the, at the time, kind of proxy border war between Ukraine and, and, and Russia and the dilemma of a, a civilian, a doctor, who feels it's his patriotic duty to go to the front and fight. And it's a, I won't kind of divulge any more of the plot, but it's an incredibly sickening and violent work, but one that has great purpose behind it. It's also beautifully aestheticized, which, you know, is a topic of controversy these days about how you represent war, how you represent violence. But I I think that the aesthetics of it are very purposeful, which is something that I look for in a work that is attempting to do that with this kind of subject matter. That's one film that I I think is particularly salient right now. Another film that I think is, is maybe he's not going to admit it, but I know that he's, it's among his favorites is, is Feathers. Yeah. Yeah. I love Feathers. Um, it's a, it won the, the best film prize at the Cement de la Critique, the Critics Week at Cannes last year and was picked up for distribution. It was going to be released by Grasshopper Films in the U.S. at some point, I believe, this year. It's actually about to be released in France in March under the French title Plume. And I, I think it's just a kind of singular vision that kind of announces a totally fresh voice in world cinema. I, I mean, I really believe that this young filmmaker Omar, Omar El-Zohairi is the real deal, you know, kind of the complete package. Um, the story is very easy to encapsulate. It's a put-upon wife and a kind of working-class family and domineering husband. They have children, two children, and during the birthday party for the elder son, the the magician who's been invited over for the party turns the husband into a chicken and then is unable to reverse the spell seeming seemingly. And so the, this put upon long suffering wife has to take care of her children and her husband who is newly transmogrified into a chicken. And it 
has a kind of surreal quality uh, something evocative at times of the humor that's in some of David Lynch's work, I think, um, kind of blackly comic quality, but also a grounding clearly in Egyptian folklore and cinema. And then also, I think, a real connection to the films of Robert Bresson and the style of it, as well as silent cinema. El Zohairi has mentioned in interviews that he was specifically thinking of Chaplin, for instance, and there's something of about the dingy apartment that they have that is part of an ap- apartment complex a- attached to this smog-choked factory where the husband works that has a little bit of that same atmosphere as like the cabin in modern times or, or things like that. And so there's connections that are kind of deep film historical connections in it that I think are really... Uh, you know, fascinating to see transformed into something new here. Yeah, it's a great film, I think. Eric, I have to ask you, what are some of the ones that really hit you the hardest? Well, I'll certainly not a discovery in terms of the filmmaker or the film, but I'm just so excited that we're showing it, which is the brand new film from Sergei Luznitsa, Mr. Landsbergis, which is a four-hour documentary, must be said, that won two major prizes at ITFA in November. We've had Sergei before. We showed his films, Don Bass and The Trial. And we have two more this year with Bobby Yar Context and now Mr. Landsbergis. And just think that Mr. Landsbergis is truly an event in the sense that it is kind of like, in some ways, the apex, or at least to date apex, of what Sergei Lesnitz has been doing with some of his documentary filmmaking, which is thread of his work that's entirely archival. This is not entirely archival. There is an interview with, with the eponymous Mr. Landsberg as the first president of Lithuania. And that is a dip that is that is certainly certainly a departure from things like Bobby Yard Context and some other films that have gotten play festival and theatrically the last several years of his. But this is kind of taking it to somehow, somehow, and he's like on his own level in terms of working with archival material. This goes somewhere else because there's really not a moment wasted. It's not a draggy film whatsoever. It just basically does the thing that maybe, if you're like me, you always wanted from films about protests and revolution, which is to really situate you in what's happening on the ground so that you're not just looking at what can often be generic protest footage, street footage. Like it winds up becoming something that becomes nonspecific, even though the stakes are extremely specific in terms of those people who are participating in this thing. This is something else where every event that there is adequate, you know, archival material for, he shapes a real scene around. And somehow sources through official archival sources, private collections, etc., such that you get these, you can't even believe you're looking at, like three 360 degree vantage points. You're looking at one event happening on a street and then somehow he cuts to another camera across the street. In fact, the person holding the camera is probably in the other person's shot. And he's just sort of found the way to kind of find the material that he needs to adequately tell a story. And it is very extremely specific. You know, I did I don't think I saw any of this footage when it happened. Some of it was on on, you know, was shot by by newscasters, etc. And it's almost a cliche to say this, but it's very much true. And this embodies it every minute for four hours is it is 
in deeply, deeply specific. And yet in going that specific, it winds up letting you see what revolutions do look like or can look like, what the formations of government look like. And without having to extrapolate, without having to force its context onto others, you get to really get in there. I would say the only thing I can compare it to, which is an entirely different film, which is not a chronological document of a time and place, but is more of an essayistic film in scope, is Grin Without a Cat, the Chris Marker film, which predating this film is the closest I've ever gotten to understanding a little bit of what was happening on the ground in various moments. And a lot of those moments that Chris Marker was recording were not even famous moments or famous situations, but he had all this incredible footage that could, could transport you there and extrapolate that into other contexts. And I feel like Mr. Landsberg is in a very different way, offers something similar. And the other thing, his work I would compare it to would be the event, which is his film reconstructing the kind of the fall of the Soviet Union as seen from, you know, the, the, the main square in St. Petersburg. And, and, and there's this minute, you know, attention to moments and really brings you into that space. Anyway, Mr. Landsberg is his, an extraordinary film. And I remember the, the speak, speaking to members of the jury that gave it the top prize. And to a person, that jury was looking to discover some new young filmmaker. And there were great films in competition. And they also, Mr. Landsberg, or something like, well, that's the map. Somehow a masterpiece just showed up in the competition. So to the fact that we get a chance to show that film, really, really excited about. But another film is a film that's coming to us directly from South by Southwest. So it hasn't even met the world yet or met its first audiences. So I don't want to give too much away about it, but it's a documentary called What We Leave Behind by Ileana Sosa. Um, and it's a film that Edo and I both just immediately loved and loved the idea of having our audience see the film. And it is a, it is, is, a, is a documentary of the filmmaker's grandfather and is really unique in terms of the way, how it's made and the manner in which it's made, the tone that it has. It is a very loving portrait of a family member, but it's also incredible work of interview. And Eliana has a way of allowing the folks that she's filming to exist in front of the camera for longer stretches than we normally get a chance to see them and to speak in front of the camera for longer stretches than we normally get to see. And there's a great sense of personality, character, of complication among family members that kind of allows it to, that, that that winds up being seen. And I think that she has an approach that affords that. And it is the sort of thing when I've, I've read copy, I've written copy, it, it's very easy to maybe think of it in terms of topicality and thinking about it in terms of border territory of Mexico and the US, immigration and all these things are important pegs. But I actually think that in some ways, that's a little bit of a disservice to what the film is, because it is is so beautifully affectionately captured and it's just a wonderful movie yeah it is the sort of film that you want to dwell for a really long time within the fact that it is not a very long film and that that our time with loved ones is always finite the idea that we get to spend that time together is is feels really precious i'm very curious about one of the opening night films the night because obviously things are not good right now in the Ukraine, but things have not been good in Hong Kong for a long time. And I think that film speaks to that as well. Thank you for bringing that up, Mike, because I think that a lot of people could watch that film and not really realize the context in which it was made. 
but it's a film by the great Taiwanese filmmaker Simon Liang, and he filmed it while he was in Hong Kong in, I believe, late 2019. And this was just around the height of the anti-extradition law protests. Like a lot of size films, dwells on empty space and on loss or longing for the past, perhaps, you know, with a sense of melancholy that I think is tied into the fact that the past is sort of never as good as we remembered it. And as a film made by someone who's not of Hong Kong, but who has clearly a deep personal connection with Hong Kong and the relationship between Hong Kong and Taiwan, going back to many years between the two film industries um, is a very important one. But then there is also the more immediate question of both of them being entities that have a difficult political relationship to mainland China and which are under threat of absorption within mainland China. Those are the different contexts of meaning that the film engages with. I have to say I was able to watch a few titles and everything that I saw was just really knocked my socks off. The one that really got to me though, was the balcony movie. I just loved that. And I loved the way that it was put together and just the idea behind it and how it was able to show so many different things all going on just outside of this man's window. I love that film too. And that's Pavel Lezinski, who's the second time we'll have him at the festival. We had him a few years ago for a film called You Have No Idea How Much I Love You. And he's also the son of one of the great living Polish filmmakers, Marcel Luzinski, who is kind of one of the, the leaders of their kind of hybrid documentary movement in the, in the 60s and 70s. And Pavel is his own man, and he's very much his own filmmaker. And I think that there's a sneaky profundity to everything that he does, mm-hmm. where you think you know what, you're, what it is, maybe it seems a little simplistic, and then by the end, you realize you're watching something that has just seismic implications. And like, you know, I have no idea how much I love you is based entirely around a therapy session. There's a therapist and there's a mother and daughter and they're working through and all you get in the entire movie is basically tight shots of all three of them as they're talking when they talk. And, you know, by the end of it, not only is it says everything about being a parent and being a child, but also everything about psychotherapy and, and like those spaces and the space that we have as audience members looking at a close-up of somebody like it just has all these implications and the whole time you kind of think you're just watching a therapy session which maybe interests you or maybe it doesn't but this film we were talking about the need for a documentary filmmaker to be adaptable to what they're actually encountering and what they're discovering you can't you know in a sense kind of pick a target and then hit that target and that's the film like you have to be open to whatever happens and and i love balcony movie because it has a setup that is very formalist and is very you'd think that you oh i get it you're going to make an entire film from your balcony in warsaw you're going to encounter people you're going to ask them all the same question and then you're going to edit it together and it'll be this sort of clever document and almost immediately it becomes something else but in subtle ways not without it becoming he doesn't you know it's not like 
the, 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 the terms change significantly, but the character of the film to me changes significantly over time. The filmmaker becomes figure in the film in ways you don't anticipate the nature of the conversations change over time. And so, yeah, I adore the film because it is the sort of thing where it's accessible. If, if you're drawn to the idea of there being a film entirely shot from somebody's balcony, you know, you're going to get that. And yet you're also going to walk away with, I think, yeah, one of the more sort of subtly experimental and humanistic documentaries in, in recent years. And there's also just a knowingness of kind of the goofiness of it too. There's a couple moments where this giant boom pole comes into the shot and he's his own sound man. So like, you don't have to see the boom pole, but he's kind of letting you know how awkward the whole thing is and how, you know, his, his, his vantage on them is really odd because it's sort of straight down in certain moments, depending on how close they are to, to the balcony. So he's kind of leaning into the kind of, awkwardness of it and the awkwardness it winds up you know not to give too much away what i think of it but once the awkwardness of the endeavor of making films like this is, is allowed to be part of the text itself one i didn't see yet but i would be very curious is vengeance is mine all others pay cash just because it's part of the what do you call it disreputable cinema because that seems to scream to me disreputable cinema even though i'm not even sure how you would categorize that well disreputable cinema is an ongoing series that we have which is programmed by two folks who either are or have been museum employees, Jesse Berberick and Justin Rodriguez. And they're, they're genre heads. You know, they love all kinds of, of genre film. And, and whether it's, you know, uh, experimental animation or horror films or sci-fi, you name it. And so we just like the idea of bringing them in to the festival because you know when we can kind of engage our ongoing programming i like the idea of like the the audience is kind of having that crossover and so when we edo and i saw and he saw first vengeance is mine and we were excited about it it sort of the light bulb went off and i was like oh this is actually we should show it to them too because this is it absolutely be the sort of thing that could show up at, at a disreputable cinema over the course of the year it's a kind of shape-shifting wild kind of utterly singular movie, which, you know, starts out and you think this is going to be a kind of rebel without a cause, but with martial arts sequences in it. And then very quickly becomes almost sort of like a, you know, a tweener romance with a couple playing guitar on their bed and talking about making ends meet. And you're sort of like, well, where did this go? And, and then, sort of comes back to being a story of infidelity and then it becomes a road movie in the last 20 minutes and there's a a a, a vengeful ghost in the movie and so it's a film that we thought we really liked but we weren't really sure well what's the place for this in first look how is this gonna fit with engage with the rest of the program and that's when the idea of showing it to jesse and and justin came in we just thought well if we can kind of make it part of disreputable and engage that audience then then it really feels like well this is the sort of this is the dark twisted corner of first look so the festival runs what four days march 16th through 20th five days actually yeah five days sorry and yeah you guys are going to be really busy 
<laughs> yes, we are. So the Wednesday, Thursday, Friday of that, the first three days during the day is when we do these works in progress and conversations and such like that. So those are those are packed days. But you know, the idea I think is that and we think a lot about this on our weekly programming, which all happens for the most part on weekends, is to think about folks coming out for a day and what are they what might they see in that day. So each day winds up having its own character. There's a bit of an thought process behind what film leads into another. So if you can only join us for one day, maybe you'll spend the afternoon or the evening with us because there's a couple of things you might want to see. And there are passes, so you could see the whole thing for one shot? Yeah, there are passes, and it's very, very reasonable, the passes. The idea is, you know, again, this is this is a labor of love, and we want these films to be seen. It's We try to lower the whatever the barrier is, make the barrier as low as possible so that you can easily scale it and, and feel like you can come and see things. And I, and I know that I didn't even know this was going to happen. There's no grand design here, but we introduced the idea of passes a few years ago and some local filmmakers came to me afterwards, or I heard them talking like the best deal in New York are these passes. Cause you can see like 10 films for $50 or whatever. And, and that's, that's the idea. You want that, you know, Great to have the commitment. Great to know that people would want to see more than one film, but we just want it to, because it's so discovery oriented. There are some filmmakers here that folks may have heard of. There are some filmmakers that, that may be kind of hot at the moment, but a lot of this work is entirely new. A lot of the filmmakers are entirely new and we just want folks to feel like they can discover and they can try something out. We've teased a lot of titles, but where's the best place to go online and find out the entire program? It is Moving Image. Dot org. Dot US. The US RTs. Oh right. gosh. The website for the museum is uh, movingimage.us. And it's a brand new website. And it actually presents the, or the new version of our website. And it, and it presents the, the program pretty, pretty beautifully. Yeah. Eric Edo, thank you so much for your time tonight, gentlemen. This was fantastic. Thank you so thank much, you. Mike.
Magenta, the other was a blue. I know my chicken, you got to know you're a chicken. 